Hi everyone, this is Eric from Dungeons & Tangents. I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm starting a new series called Knowledge History D&D. For the past couple months, I've been obsessing over the history of Dungeons & Dragons. I've read books, articles, FBI reports. No, seriously. The FBI investigated Gary Gygax in the 80s, but I'll cover that later. And after doing all this obsessing and researching, I decided to start this series. I hope it helps you understand the games we play as much as it's helped me. It's really given me a different perspective on things. Oh, uh, one more thing. I am not a historian, but I'll be playing one in this podcast. So if you hear anything that doesn't sound historically accurate, feel free to call me out on it. Message me on Twitter at dungeon underscore tangent, and I'll make things right. And now I present Knowledge History D&D. This is Knowledge History D&D, Episode 1, The Prehistory to D&D. Part 1, From Chaturanga to Chess. In the beginning, Dungeons and Dragons did not exist. In this series, I intend to chronologically traverse the history of the game of Dungeons and Dragons. That history could be traced back practically to the beginning of humanity. But among all the games in history, one stands out as an obvious origin of the modern tabletop role-playing game. That game was Chaturanga. Though the origins and details of this game's rules are not well known, it was developed in India, most likely around 500 and 600 AD. The name Chaturanga is Sanskrit and loosely translates to army. It was a game of military conquest, perhaps one of the first. This game is the grandfather of chess, and, much like modern chess, Chaturanga was a two-player game, played on an 8x8 grid with 16 pieces per player. One side's pieces are black, the other side white. Most of the pieces of Chaturanga would look familiar to you. The pawn, the rook, the knight, and the king were practically identical to modern chess. However, the queen in Chaturanga was a general or an advisor. Additionally, the bishops were elephants. These differences reflected the military units that might have been key to warfare in India around 500 AD. The pieces in Chaturanga moved as follows. The Raja, or king, moved one step in any direction, just like the king in chess. The Montri, or advisor, was the piece that sits in the modern queen's place. It moved only one step diagonally, unlike the modern queen. The Ratha, or chariot, was the analog to the modern rook. It moved horizontally or vertically, identically to the modern rook. The Gaja, or elephant, was similar to the modern bishop. There's no consensus on how the gaja moved, but it was likely not similar to the modern bishop. The ashva, or horse, was identical in every way to the knight in chess. The padadi, or foot soldier, was exactly like the pawn in chess, except that it did not have the option for an initial double move. The migration of Chaturanga started between 600 and 700 AD. 
It was brought west along the Silk Road to Persia. In Persia, it was given the name Shatranj, and would eventually be introduced to medieval Europe. By the 1200s, Europeans were playing a variant of chaturanga they called chess. This initial version of chess did not entirely match the modern rules, but the names pawn, rook, knight, bishop, king, and queen became the standards. Through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, chess was a part of noble culture and an element of military strategic training. Between 1475 and 1500, a variant of chess emerged that changed the game forever. This variant gave the queen more power and more freedom. Much like the mantri in Chaturanga, earlier versions of the queen moved only one space at a time and only diagonally. This new variant allowed her to move along any unobstructed straight or diagonal line on the board. This new rule set was named Mad Queen's Chess for the unprecedented power given to the queen. This version of chess was generally considered more fun and exciting and became the favorite among Europeans. To this day, Mad Queen's Chess is how modern chess is played. Chess was then and still is today one of the most popular war games on earth. It has inspired people to create new games for centuries, and nearly every game based on military conflict is likely to find its origins in chess and chaturanga. I find it fascinating that between 600 AD and today, chess has stayed extremely close to its original concept. It's a testament to how fun and engaging chess truly is. In researching the origins of D&D, I kind of suspected something more obscure than chess would be the ultimate progenitor. It makes the world feel a little bit smaller to know that a 1,400-year-old game is only a few steps away from the game I play on the weekends with my friends, and it's only a few more steps away from video games. The next step in our history starts in the early 1800s. Part 2. Kriegspiel, the war game. Chess is, in essence, a military simulation. But chess is considered a perfect information game, where all players can see everything that happens in the game. Human combat shares very little with perfect information games. A true military simulation requires elements of chance and misinformation. In the 18-teens, a lieutenant in the Prussian army and his son developed a system that took random chance and misinformation into account. The lieutenant was George Heinrich Leopold Freihern von Reiswitz. His son had an equally long-winded name, George Heinrich Rudolf Johann Baron von Reiswitz. The system they created was called Kriegspiel, which translates to war game. Kriegspiel was run on a custom-made wooden table using wooden tiles to represent different terrains and wooden pieces for different military units. The game could also be run on a map of a region to simulate a specific area's unique geography. Kriegspiel was less of a game and more of a military strategy tool for the Prussian and German armies. A set of rules that allowed strategists to test maneuvers before committing troops to combat. Because the rules were so complex and required some hidden information, Kriegspiel involved a third-party arbiter. This position was called a confidant by the creator but anyone who's ever played D&D would call them the Game Master or Dungeon Master. In the original version of Kriegspiel, the Confidant was more of a rules lawyer. 
But as it evolved, the position began to look more like the modern game master. Someone who controlled the circumstances of the game, changed the rules, sped it up or slowed it down, and kept the game appropriately balanced. Kriegspiel has gone on to be the progenitor of not just a series of tabletop games, but an entire industry of military simulations. In this series, I'll be focused on the former. When I first read about Kriegspiel, I assumed it was run using toy soldiers for the military units. But if you look up pictures of the game, it was mostly just blocks of wood and painted markers. I find it interesting that toy soldiers have been part of most young boys' toy boxes for a very, very long time. Whether they're cast iron soldiers from the 1800s or G.I. Joes from my youth, there's even evidence of wooden military toys in ancient Greece and Rome but somehow it took until the late 1800s before someone made a game centered around them. And that's our next step. Part three, Little Wars. By the 1890s, a small community of people in the United Kingdom were playing a variant of Kriegspiel as a hobby. Most of the hobbyists were older men who had played with toy soldiers as children. These games were typically two-sided military conflicts. The players would reenact historical battles using maps and miniature military units. They would spread out on a table, or a floor of a room, or an entire yard. Each player would direct the movements of a regiment of soldiers. This group of hobbyists included the Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson and the British writer H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was so passionate about this hobby that in 1913, he published a simplified version of Kriegspiel he called Little Wars. His intention was to simplify Kriegspiel and make it accessible to a younger audience. The rules of Little Wars described how to turn stacks of books and wood blocks into a battlefield. They give rules for how players can navigate tin soldiers through a countryside and create a lively battle with a friend. The full title of Little Wars reads... Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150, and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. In the introduction to the game's rules, Wells reiterates, it can be played by boys of every age, by girls of the better sort, and by a few rare and gifted women. At first read, it seems that Wells had a low opinion of girls and women, perhaps sharing the typical misogynistic views of the turn of the century. However, in 1913, H.G. Wells had abandoned the writing of science fiction that made him famous. Instead, he was focused on writing novels with female protagonists. He actively supported women's suffrage and greater education for women. In this light, I tend to believe he was poking fun at the misogyny of his time. Regardless, Little Wars was a bellwether for a growing interest in miniature wargaming. This game truly is the progenitor of the modern tabletop game, like Warhammer or X-Wing, Malifaux, and War Machine. Between the 19-teens and the 1950s, the miniature wargaming hobby grew slowly. But in the 1950s, a group of wargamers in the US, Canada, and England started corresponding by mail. In 1957, a man by the name of Jack Scrubby started publishing and distributing a newsletter. The publication was called War Game Digest, 
and it became the publication around which the miniature wargaming hobby coalesced. Since 1955, Jack Scrubby had been making and selling historically accurate miniatures. Publishing Wargame Digest helped him grow his business and the hobby. Years later, Jack would partner with the creators of Dungeons & Dragons to create miniatures for their games as well. The advent of Wargame Digest inevitably led to the first Wargame convention. This first convention was held in 1964 in Philadelphia. It was a one-day event. 80 people attended, and the agenda included demonstrations, discussions, cocktails, dinner, and a pipe band. Because the gaming community was so influenced by Kriegspiel, most of their games were based on the Napoleonic Wars. Kriegspiel was, of course, created during that period. As a result, the hobby is sometimes called Napoleonic Wargaming. To this day, there is still a community of people who enthusiastically build scale replicas of early 1800s villages, just to march tin soldiers through them. I generally imagine the average 1950s wargamer as a balding man, likely wearing a plaid shirt and slacks, maybe smoking a pipe. Someone who might have been a soldier in World War I or World War II. Someone who played with tin soldiers as a child. Sadly, Napoleonic wargaming is not my cup of tea. I would rather play a compelling personal story of an individual. Miniature wargames generally treat the individual as a cog in the machine. The fun of wargaming is the tactics. Outthink and outmaneuver your opponent. It's a larger scale and more immersive version of chess or chaturanga. But I must acknowledge that these tin soldiers sparked the imaginations of many. Next time on Knowledge History D&D, we follow the journey of D&D from the 1950s miniature war gaming community to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and St. Paul, Minnesota, the cities that became the birthplace of D&D. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about our sources, the music in this episode, or the history of D&D, go to dungeonsandtangents.net. Script for this episode by Eric Dewhurst. Titles by Jen Kunrath. Special thanks to Robert Sherman for not doing a damn thing on this episode.